Good morning, Jacob's Well Church. I hope you are all doing well this Sunday morning. Uh, if I've not met you, my name is Dan. I'm the pastor here at Jacob's Well Church, and we are so glad to have you with us this morning. Would love to connect with you even during this time of quarantine. So if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, you can email me at danjackson at jacobswellgb.org, and we can set up a time to meet virtually uh, over Zoom or a phone call or whatever it might be. Would love to do that. I have several announcements for you this morning before we dive into God's Word. First off, we are having a virtual membership class this Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. This is a great class for anyone considering membership to Jacobswell Church or who just wants to find out more about Jacobswell Church. If you're interested in coming to that class, the deadline is today, uh, Sunday. So you have to email Angie Tolfa today at admin at jacobswellgb.org, and she'll send you a membership packet tomorrow that you need to read over before membership class. Also want to let you know that the next episode of Getting the Gospel Out is now available. Um, it is on Apple Podcasts as well as Google Play or www.gettingthegospelout.org. And in this episode, we talk about how do we share the gospel with our children? From infancy through adulthood, how do we share the good news of Jesus with them over and over and over again? So I want to encourage you to check that out. Also want to let you know that we still have some yard signs available for virtual church. If you're interested in a yard sign, you can stop by our church or my house on the east side or the Horton's house up north, and we have extras there. If you can't make it out, we'd love to bring it to you. Just shoot me a text or an email, and I can make sure that we arrange a way for those yard signs to be dropped off for you. Also wanted to ask you to continue to pray for the elders of Jagoswell Church. Uh, we are consulting with many of the people in our church that are in the medical field about how and when to transition back to small groups and large groups and corporate worship. It's a tough thing. And so just want to ask you to pray for us as we seek God's wisdom on this matter. Uh, we're considering a lot of different options, just trying to figure out what the Lord would have us do. So please keep us in prayer. Also, as I shared last week, today's sermon is rated PG-13. Um, it has some adult content in it. As you read through the passage, you can see what that is. But if you have kids that are old enough to kind of understand what's going on, but, but too young to really hear this message, we do have another video available for them, so you can set them up on another device. And the link for that is in the description of this video. It's a YouTube link. encourage you to go there and to set it up for them to watch if you want. Uh, otherwise, you could watch it with them and then watch the sermon later tonight when the kids are in bed or whenever you uh, are able to do that. So also want to give you a heads up. Next week, the sermon will also be rated PG-13 uh, because this is God's word and God addresses every area of life, even those things in our life that are PG-13. And so next week's sermon will be PG-13 as well, and we'll provide a video for your children at that time as well. Uh, before we get to my favorite part of the announcements, which is showing off the kids' pictures from last week. Wanted to give this week's assignment. The kids' video is going to be probably 15 minutes shorter than, than the sermon is going to be. And so um, here's the coloring assignment for your kids that they can work on once their video is over. And this comes from Miss Horton, our children's ministry director. She wants you to draw a picture of what sin looks like, okay? What sin looks like and and what Jesus does with our sin, okay? I'm assuming it relates to the video. I haven't watched the video, but but what? draw a picture of what you think sin looks like. It could be a little character. It could be something else. And what does Jesus do with that sin, okay? So that's your coloring assignment. Once you're done with it, parents, if you could take a picture of it and take, take a picture landscape and not portrait, so side to side, not vertical, that's easier to put in the videos next week. Take a picture of it, post it on our Facebook page, or you can email or text it to me. I'll make sure that we show it off next week. Right now, we're going to have a time of fellowship. Uh, feel free to set your kids up, grab a cup of coffee, uh, notepad, whatever you might need. We'll meet back here in a minute for the preaching of God's Word.
Welcome back. Okay, do you have all the youngsters out of the room? If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 20 today. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen for you as well. This is God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your holy inspired, inerrant word. God, I pray that you would press its eternal truths on our, whole, on our soul, both for our joy, but also for your glory, Lord. God, as we wade into the waters of a very tender topic of sexuality, Lord, God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts to hear what you have to teach us today and lead us in the way everlasting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The city of Corinth, uh, who this letter is written to, um, was located on an isthmus, kind of like Madison is, okay? It's a small strip of land about five miles wide that separated two large bodies of water. You can see it here on the map. It separates the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf. And Oftentimes, to save time and money, boats would portage at Corinth, meaning that the boats were, if they were small enough, they would land on one side of the isthmus and load up on a cart and drag the boat across to the other side of the isthmus into the other body of water. If the boats were too big, what they would do is they'd unload the cargo, carry it across the isthmus, and then load it onto another boat. Corinth was called the Bridge of the Sea. Uh, this passage was so helpful that eventually in 1882, a little over 100 years ago, they built a narrow canal. And you can see how narrow this canal is with this cruise ship. It looks so tight, doesn't it? Anyways, in biblical times, because of its strategic location, Corinth was a major trade city. And it was inundated with boats and sailors from all over the region. And so seizing the opportunity, they established a temple to Aphrodite's who is the Olympian goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. You can see a picture of the temple here. It's located up on a hill. And located in this temple was at times over a thousand temple prostitutes. And there are reports where you could see just trails of sailors streaming up the hillside to get to these temple prostitutes. Now, if girls weren't your thing, there was also a temple at the base of the mountain for those who wanted to fulfill their homosexual longings. Sexual promiscuity was so prevalent in the city of Corinth, a term actually came about to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant to be sexually promiscuous. 
Their name was associated with sexual deviance. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a, a temple built to worship sex in the middle of a city? How crazy would that be to see a temple built to sex in Green Bay? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? But the reality is, there are temples to sex all around us today. Whether it be a strip club or a massage parlor that provides extra services or a restaurant where the women wear clothing that should be on a 12-year-old. Driving along the highway, you see signs for adult bookstores. These are all temples in our communities to the God of sex. But to be honest, the temples of sex are not only in our community. They're also under our roofs. All we need is a TV with commercials, right? I mean, you've heard the saying, sex sells. And the reality is, it does. Or books, maybe racy magazines or romance novels or the internet. The average child now views pornography for the first time at age 11. Today, sex temples are not only in our community and under our houses, they are mobile. They're on our computers, on our phones, on our tablets. All serve potentially as temples of sexual idolatry. Sex is more accessible, more private, and more destructive today than ever before in the history of the world. Back in January of 2003, so this is 17 years ago when the internet was less available, pornography had grown into a $10 billion business, bigger than the NFL NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. Since that time, it has grown 10 times as large and is now a $100 billion a year industry. That's the, the industry of pornography. 16 secular U.S. states have declared the explosion of online pornography to be a public health crisis because of the way that it destroys people and marriages and families and communities. The coronavirus has been big business for porn sites, some reporting as much as an 18% boom in one month, especially in areas like New York City and Washington, where they were first quarantined. Temples to sex don't only exist in our community and in our homes and in our pockets and purses. Sadly, temples to sex primarily exist in our hearts. It's Jesus who said, For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Sexual temple of worship, sexual sin, and sexual brokenness it's not primarily something that is out there. It is something that is in here, in our own hearts. Pastor Sam Asbury, who ferociously battles against same-sex attraction, remarks that none of us are sexually straight. All of us have been perverted in our sexuality. All of us are broken in our sexuality. All of us are fallen in our sexuality. And that includes your pastor. None of us are sexually straight. And so let's not study this passage simply to condemn the ways of the world and those bad people out there or the perverted person sitting in the room next to you. But let's come to this passage out of desperation for our own souls, being honest about our own sexual brokenness and endeavoring that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more holy, holy in our sexuality. And so with this in mind, I want to focus on three questions from this passage, okay? And I'm going to use the word mortify. And what the word mortify means is to put to death, all right? So the first question is, what is the sexual sin we must mortify, okay? Number two, why must we mortify sexual sin? I mean, it's enjoyable. It's pleasurable. Why do we have to mortify it? And thirdly, how must we mortify sexual sin? And so what is it? Why must we mortify it? And how can we mortify it? All right, those are the three things we're going to cover. First, what is the sexual sin we must 
mortified. This might seem like a silly question, like the answer is fairly obvious, but to be honest with you, if you're over the age of 30, you know in our own country how much the answer to this question has shifted, really at breakneck speed. Uh, There is so much confusion in our country as to what is sexual sin and what isn't sexual sin, or if sexual sin even exists at all. And so before we answer the question, what is sexual sin? I want to ask a question below the question, which I think is so extremely important to us getting to this question of what is sexual sin. And the question below the question is this, how do we decide what is sexually immoral and what isn't? How do we decide what is sexual sin and what isn't sexual sin? Who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide if pornography is sexually immoral or if it's just a rite of passage for young boys? Who gets to decide if having sex with strangers by simply swiping right on your phone is immoral, or if it's just a good time? Who gets to decide if having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance is sinful, or if it's just an appetizer of what is to come? Who gets to decide these things? Who gets to decide if bestiality, polygamy, pedophilia is immoral, or if it's just progressive view of sexuality. How do we decide? Who gets to decide what is immoral and sinful? Well, really, I see three major options that people choose from today. The first option is that we determine what is sexually immoral by what our hearts tell us, right? So if it feels right, then it must be right. There are so many problems with this view. First off, we know that our hearts are constantly changing. We can look back to when we were a child and how we just wanted to eat candy nonstop. And we know our hearts were not in the right place there. We know our hearts were deceiving us to do something that was bad. And so our hearts are not trustworthy. They're always changing. Furthermore, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked and cannot be trusted. And so our hearts cannot determine what's right and wrong sexually. But that's how many people determine what's right and wrong sexually. Another option is that we determine sexual sin by what our culture or our government says. So instead of one single deceptive heart, we take the collective deceptive hearts of the people and we use this to gauge what is right and wrong. And there are many errors in this as well. I mean, there are many cultures in which the government and the society uh, endorse something that today we think is hideous. I mean, you can think about Nazi Germany and what they did to the Jews. Or if you can look even at our own country, you can think about slavery and how we treated the Native Americans. We look back at those times, things that were widely accepted, and we look at them and we say, that was horrific. To be honest, people in the future are going to look back at our times, and they're going to judge us and say, what were they thinking? And so culture is not a good determinant of what is sexual sin and what isn't sexual sin. The third option, which is the option that I would propose to you, is that we determine what sexual sin is by what God says. That the creator of mankind, the creator of male and female, the creator of sexual organs and sex itself is the one who can tell us what is sexually right and what is sexually wrong. The reason I ask these questions on how do we determine what is sexually immoral is because your heart and the culture around us is screaming one standard, but God's word is whispering another. And the question is, how do we determine what is sexually immoral, what is sexual sin, and what isn't? And the only standard that is steady and true and firm is the word of God. And so, What does God's word say? What does God's word tell us about what is sexual sin? The sexual sin that we must mortify. Well, look at verse 9 and 10 with me. The apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9 and 10 covers a wide range of sins, but I want to focus on verse 9 and a couple of words and phrases that focus on sexual sin. First, you'll see sexually immoral. Uh, The King James Version translates this as fornication. It's the Greek word pornos, which we get the term pornography 
This term pornos can refer to a prostitute, but more generally, it refers to any unlawful sexual intercourse or, or, or act. This means it refers to any sex outside the context of a covenantal marriage relationship. This includes everything from hooking up with someone on Tinder or Craigslist to having oral sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend or fiance. Another word used here is adulterer. Uh, that is someone who is married and has sex with someone that they're not married to, or if someone's not married and they have sex with someone who is married to someone else. That is an adulterer. This is the surface level definition of adultery. But Jesus presses it down deeper into our hearts. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This means if you fantasize about other men or other women, you are an adulterer. Paul continues in verse 9. And he says, men who practice homosexuality. Now, this is men who have sex with or fantasize about other men. Notice it's not lifted out of this passage as being like the worst sexual sin there is. It's, it is sexual sin, but it's in a list of other sexual sins. And it's not just for men. It's also for women. Romans chapter 1 talks about how women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And so, and so Paul says homosexuality is a sin. Now, if you're over the age of 30, I, I don't have to tell you that there has been a major shift in our country's cultural view on this matter of homosexuality, even within the Christian culture. Not so long ago, the American culture and Christian culture viewed homosexuality as immoral. Now, some churches are, are open and affirming of homosexual lifestyle today. It's almost their gospel that they proclaim. Many companies are racing to endorse homosexuality with their products. It's like you're watching a commercial on dog food, and it, and it ends by two men kissing. You're like, what does it have to do with dog food? And so there is this tidal wave of pressure to celebrate and promote homosexuality. And that's why I started with the question, how do we decide what is right and what is wrong? Do we decide by what our culture is screaming, by what our hearts feel, or by God's timeless word. Now, as we ask these questions, what is sexual sin? I think there is another important word here in verse 9. And it's the word idolater. You see, it's sandwiched right in there between all the sexual sins. Idolatry is worshiping the creation over the creator. Idolatry is when you take a good thing that God has made and make it an ultimate thing. We can idolize sports or money or even sex, and especially sex. You see, when God created the world, God looked at everything he made and said, it is good, but then he created man and woman, and he looked at them and says, it is very good. Humanity is the crown of creation, the most beautiful part of God's creation. Only human beings were given the image of God, and because we must worship something all the time, it makes sense that if we are not going to worship the creator we will worship the crown of his creation, which is other people. And so here's what Paul is saying. And what the Bible teaches us is that when we engage in sexual thoughts and actions, it is never neutral. It is always an act of worship. Either we are worshiping sex and people if it is an act of sexual sin, or we're worshiping God if it is an act of sexual fidelity to our spouse and to the Lord. So when you click on that website, entertain that thought, rewatch that part of the movie, you're worshiping. <laughs> Not God, you're worshiping sex as your God. We're rejecting the creator and worshiping his creation. The final phrase I want to point out here at the beginning is, is, is really the final phrase is, is at the beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 10. Paul says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? At the end of verse 10, it says the exact same thing. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the point I want to make. Sexual sin is serious. Paul says it is a damnable perversion. Sexual sin condemns people to hell. It disqualifies people from the kingdom of God. Sexual sin is serious, and it should not be taken lightly. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Sexual sin is not to be taken casually. As if, oh, you know, I'm a forgiven, I'm a Christian, it's no big deal. This is a lie from Satan and from our flesh. But to God, our sexuality is a serious matter. And when we are casual about things that are serious and destructive, very bad things happen. Just to give you an example, from recent news, you may remember when Rudy Gobert, the the, the basketball player from the Utah Jazz was mocking the coronavirus and he touched every microphone he could after his interview, just kind of joking around and, and being playful. And then he, he went into the locker room and he was touching all the players' items and he was touching the other players. He wasn't keeping his distance. He wasn't keeping it seriously. And as a result, other people got sick. If you want other examples, you could just think about the Titanic or Pearl Harbor, both of them were giving strong warnings of danger and destruction. And yet both of them treated the warnings casually and many injured and were perished. Sexual sin, as we'll continue to read in this passage, is a serious sin. You will either be killing sexual sin or sexual sin will be killing you. There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. Don't take sexual sin as defined by God casually. Wage war against sexual sin in your hearts and life. Seek to mortify, to put to death sexual sin, even if it's painful, even if it's cumbersome, even if it's inconvenient. And so just to recap, what is the sexual sin we must mortify? Well, it is sexual actions or passions outside the context of a monogamous, heterosexual, covenantal marriage. And at its very heart, it is idolatry, worshiping created things over the creator. And it is serious, something that we should not take casually, but seek to mortify. The second question is, why must we mortify sexual sin? Now, Paul doesn't simply say, hey, just stop it because it's bad and it's serious. Paul doesn't just shame the Corinthians, but rather inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul points us back to the joy of the gospel. And Paul gives us four reasons, four motivations, four truths that we must cling to when we are tempted by sexual sin. The first is we must mortify sexual sin because of what God has done for us. Let's walk through verse 11 and 12 slowly. Paul starts it by saying this, and such were some of you. Paul is speaking in the past tense. He's saying, you were a fornicator. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You were a homosexual. You were a non-inheritor of the kingdom of God. This is who you are. These sins defined you. This was your identity. That's what you were, but it is no longer who you are, not because of what you have done, not because you've cleaned yourself up and proven sexual sobriety, not because you've pulled yourself up by the bootstraps, but because of what God has done on your behalf through his son, Jesus. Paul says, but you were washed. You were made clean. The filth of your sexual sin was washed away by the blood of Jesus. But you were sanctified. That is that you were purified, consecrated, made holy. You were set apart by God and for God. He says, but you were justified. That is you were vindicated of your guilt by the righteousness of Christ applied to you. You were declared sexually righteous according to the sexual righteousness of Christ. He goes on and says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is true for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now here is the amazing thing about what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul is not writing to a Corinthian church that is sexually pure. Uh, we know that by what we've read so far, but, but also right here in this passage, Paul is exhorting them towards sexual purity because they aren't sexually pure. As a matter of fact, they're probably the most sexually deviant church that Paul writes to. And yet Paul in these verses says to sexual sin struggling Christians, your sin no longer defines you. You may still struggle with these sins, but they're no longer who you are. Not because of what you have done, but because of what God has done for you at the cross and through his Holy Spirit. Listen, if you are a Christian, no matter how great and numerous your sexual sins are, 
God has washed you and you are no longer dirty. God has justified you and you are no longer guilty. God has sanctified you and you are no longer vile. Praise God. Paul continues, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is taking a pagan saying, which is all things are lawful for me, and he's turning it on his head. People are using this to, to, to justify their sexual sin. But Paul is saying, while, while you might feel like you are free to indulge in sexual sin, the reality is you're not free at all. You're being dominated, overpowered, and enslaved by sexual sin. And why would you do this? In light of the reality of what God has done for you, he has washed you and justified you and sanctified you. He has freed you from the stain of sexual sin, from the guilt of sexual sin, and the vileness of sexual sin. So why would you put yourself back under its dominion? And so why must we mortify sexual sin? The first reason Paul gives us is because of what God has done for us. The second reason is because of what God will do for us. Paul continues again quoting pagan sayings used to justify sexual sin. Verse 13, he says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The, the pagan rationale goes like this, okay? Or, or the Christian rationale that's influenced by pagan theology. It says, you know, God gave me an appetite for food. I get hungry. And when I get hungry, I eat food. And it's no big deal. Uh, after all, the stomach will be destroyed one day anyways, right? And in the same way, God gave me a sexual appetite. And so when I am sexually hungry, I go and have sex with whomever or whatever. And it's no big deal. After all, the body is going to be destroyed, right? Do you, you see, if you remember back in, in 1 Corinthians 15 over Easter, we talked about how they denied the physical resurrection of Christ. And here you see how it influences their sexuality. Like, the body's all going to be gone anyways. It doesn't really matter. They didn't believe the body was important to their Christianity, only their soul. But Paul says, no. Ultimately, your body will not be destroyed. Your physical body matters to God. Paul continues and he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body, including all of your sexual organs, were created by God and for God. I don't mean to be crass, but to make the point, let me put it this way. Men, your penis was created by God and for God and is to be used to the glory of God. Okay? Women, your vagina was created by God and for God and is to be used to the glory of God in any and every situation, as is your stomach and your eyes and your hands and your feet. These are sacred instruments of God given to you to steward for his glory. Verse 14, Paul continues and says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul is reminding them that while their bodies might rot away in the grave, their bodies will also be raised up eternally. Right now we are engaged to be the Lord. But in the day where the trumpet will sound and Christ returns, we will be raised as the bride of Christ battlely. Think of it this way. If you were engaged to be married to someone, how would you feel if they were running around and having sex with a bunch of other people? You would hate it. I hope you would hate it, right? You want them to preserve their body in purity for the wedding day. So we should keep our bodies pure in our engagement to be the Lord's. So we can give it to him with utmost purity, which he raises up when he raises us from the dead. And so why must we mortify sexual sin? One, because of what God has done for you washing you, sanctifying you, and justifying you. Secondly, because of what God will do for you when he raises you up bodily as his bride. Okay, two more. The third reason why we must mortify sexual sin is because of who we are. Remember back in verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you. You were fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals. That's who you were. That was your identity. But that's not who you are anymore. And so the question is, who are we then? If we're not those things, if those sins don't define us, what defines us? Who are we? Verse 15, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies, not just your soul, but your bodies are members of Christ? You know, we are 
fingers and we are arms and we are eyes and ears and nose and mouth of, of Christ's body. You know, you can't take your hand and detach it and reattach it to your body. Even if your hand forgets that it's part of your body, or even if your hand doesn't want to be a part of your body, it is still inseparably attached to your body and a part of your body. In the same way, if you trust in Christ, you are inseparably united to Jesus Christ and his body, the church, and you can't detach yourself from this body on a Friday night and reattach it on Sunday morning. You are inseparably attached to the body of Christ. And just as if you took a hammer and hit it on your hand, when you pursue sexual sin, it hurts the whole body. Paul continues with this truth in mind and says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The answer, of course, is never. Notice in verse 15, Paul uses this word member three times. You're a member of Christ's body. Should you take yourself as a member of Christ's body and make it a member of a prostitute? Okay. Now, now how does how do we become members of a prostitute? Or or really it's it's anyone that you have sex with, okay? That when you have sex with someone, you become a member with them. Well, Paul continues in verse 16 to explain this. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here we see the power that God has infused into sex. Sex is not simply an exchange of bodily fluids or or momentary pleasure. It is something spiritual and wonderful and powerful in which two people become intertwined, both body and soul. You see, one of God's intentions for sex is to galvanize or to superglue people together who have sex. See, God created sex to weld souls together. That's why one of the cruelest things one human can do to another is to give them their body without giving them their soul or without committing to them. Because God made sex wonderfully powerful, like super glue for the souls. And because we are united to Christ and his church, we must be careful who we're super gluing ourselves to. Verse 19, he continues and says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In the Old Testament, the temple was a sacred and holy place that was revered. It was where the Holy Spirit of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But now, through Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in Christians, collectively as a church, but also individually as believers. And because we are the temple of God, we must not defame God's temple with sexual sin. This past July, a girl in upstate New York was accused of a hate crime for spraying Uh, for, for spray painting swastikas on various churches. It was a hate crime. If we are God's temple, in modern language, to desecrate God's temple with sexual sin is a hate crime against God himself and against whoever we're having sex with. We must mortify sexual sin because of who we are. Sexual sin is inconsistent with our new identity as members of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit. Finally, we must mortify sexual sin not only because of who we are, but also because of whose we are. Look at the end of verse 19. Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You see, you can do with your body whatever you want to do with your body if your body belongs to you. But if you're a Christian, your body doesn't belong to you. You have surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You have resigned your self-lordship. You don't get to call the shots anymore. You have been placed under new ownership. The imagery Paul is using here is that of a slave in the ancient world. You see, if a person was in debt, sometimes what they would do is they would sell themselves into slavery for a time or for the rest of their life to pay off that debt, okay? And whenever they did this, they were surrendering their right to their own lordship. They they couldn't make decisions about vacation or money or anything else as they wanted to. They were underneath another person's lordship. They had a new lord. God has purchased you 
out of the debt of your sin. And you know what? You were not cheap. (laughs) You didn't cost $100,000 or a million dollars or a billion dollars. You are far more expensive than that. You were the most expensive gift of all times in the history of the world. God purchased you with a priceless price tag. God's cost to purchase you was the cost of his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, who died to pay your debt for all of your sexual sin and all your other sin to purchase you to himself so he might raise you to new life through Christ and his resurrection. Why should we mortify sexual sin in our lives? Because of what God has done for us. Because of what God will do for us. Because of who we are in Christ and because of whose we are through Christ. Let me give you an example of this quickly. Augustine is a famous theologian from the fourth century. Prior to his conversion, he was very sexually promiscuous. One day after his conversion, he ran into a former mistress on the street. Immediately upon recognizing her, Augustine quickly turned and started walking in the other direction. The woman was surprised to see Augustine and and surprised to see him walking in the other direction. And so she cried out to him, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine, continuing to move away from her, replied, yes, but it is no longer I. See, what was it that, that motivated Augustine to mortify sexual sin? It was an understanding that he was a new creation, that he had a new identity in Christ, that he was made holy and righteous and clean, that he was a member of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, and to pursue sexual sin would be completely inconsistent with his new and glorious identity. He knew not only who he was, but whose he was. Remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so glorify God with your body. Final question is, how must we mortify sexual sin? Paul gives us two ways to mortify sexual sin. There are only two commands in this whole passage, one in verse 18 and one in verse 20. And those are our two commands on how to mortify sin. First is to flee from sexual immorality, from sexual sin. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. When Paul is telling us to flee sexual immorality, there's a pretty good chance that he is thinking of the patriarch Joseph. Do you remember what happened to Joseph in Genesis 39? In Genesis chapter 39, Potiphar's wife, who was most most probably a very beautiful woman, woman, started throwing herself at Joseph. And do you remember how he responded? In Genesis 39, it says, But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. You know, it's so interesting. Paul doesn't tell us to fight against sexual sin. He says, run away from it. And the reason is because Paul knows how powerful and destructive sexual sin is. And so let me ask you, what does it look like in your life to flee sexual sin? What does that mean particularly for you? Maybe for you, fleeing means that you delete certain apps on your phone that you use to entertain sexual sin. Maybe it means setting boundaries with your boyfriend or your girlfriend in terms of how late you're together or if you're together alone or things like that. It may mean putting web accountability or a web filter for accountability on your computer or electronic devices. It may mean throwing away romance novels or, or not watching the Hallmark Channel. Uh, it may mean not watching rated R movies. It may mean just getting up and walking out of a situation where you feel very sexually tempted. Paul says we must flee from sexual sin. But that's only half the equation. Because if we only flee from sexual sin, it leaves us unsatisfied. It leaves a cavern where we fill it with something else. And so Paul continues with the second command. We we must not only flee from sexual sin, but we must flee to glorify. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, Christ calls us to something much greater 
than to simply stop sinning. (laughs) I think some of us have reduced Christianity at times to simply, I need to not sin. Like that's the whole totality of what it means to be a Christian. And that is awful and it is numbing. You see, God has much bigger plans for us than to simply put sin to death. God is calling us to live all of life for a great purpose, for the glory of God. This includes at our workplace, when we play, when we rest, and even when we have sex. I know this illustration may seem strange, but when I was in elementary school, we had this thing called the bookmobile. I'm not sure if you had it, but we had it. And basically what it was, it was this huge trailer full of books from the public library. Okay? And it was great because it took something which was fixed, which was the public library, and it made it mobile to spread the riches of the public library around with these different elementary schools. In verses 19 through 20, God does not call us to be bookmobiles, but God calls us to be temple mobiles. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple was in a fixed place. It was in Jerusalem. That's where the Holy Spirit dwelt, and people had to travel to it to enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, the temple is made mobile. The Holy Spirit is placed inside every Christian that is born again, which is to be a Christian. And then you are sent out to be mobile temples of God, to bring the joy and the light and the glory of God into every sphere of life. Christian, don't simply flee from sexual sexual immorality. Your souls will be wholly unsatisfied. Flee into your homes, into your workplaces, into your bedrooms as mobile temples to glorify our amazing God. Let me end with this couple things. First off, if you are deeply struggling with sexual sin, whether it be pornography, homosexuality, lust, or something else, you probably tried, tried to fight it alone, and you've probably lost several times. And yet even right now, you are thinking to yourself, I'm really going to fight it hard alone, and I'm going to win. But you can't. God did not create us to mortify sin alone but to mortify sin together. So we have created some care groups to walk you through purity, okay? Whether you're a male or a female, whether you're wrestling with heterosexuality or homosexuality. So I'm gonna share those with you after the benediction, okay? So, So please stay there. It's just a short video for you or for someone that you love. One final thought. The reason we pervert sex as God intended is not because we cherish and value and love sex too much. It's actually because we cherish and value and love sex too little. Let me, let me illustrate this way. Let's say you got a brand new iPhone 11, okay? iPhone 11s are so nice, and, and without a discount, they cost like a gajillion dollars, okay? So let's say you have a brand new iPhone 11, and, and you are walking down the boardwalk in downtown Green Bay along the river with your brand new iPhone, and you're cradling it like a baby, and you're being so delicate and careful with it, and you know, you're swiping, and you're checking it out, and you're showing it off to your friend. And your friend says, hey, can I see your iPhone? And, and, and you pause and you think about it and you pray about it and you're like, it's, it's only an iPhone, okay? So, so, so you, lo- you let them check out your iPhone and they're, they're, they're scrolling through, they're playing it, they're seeing the new apps and seeing how cool the camera is and all of that. And, and as you're walking along, they trip over a nail, all right? But they don't drop the phone, they still have the phone and you're like, man, avoided a crisis there, right? But, but then you see your friend get down on their knees right by this loose nail, And they take your iPhone and they hold it up and they start banging the nail down, okay? As if the iPhone is a hammer. Now, let me ask you, in that moment, who's the one that cherishes and values and loves that phone more? Is it the one who wants to protect it and use it as is intended in all of its glory? Or the one who wants to use it just to hammer in nails, to use it in ways that it is not intended? Do you know who cherishes and values sex more than you? God does. I mean, just read the book of Songs of Solomon. It kind of reads like 50 shades of gray, but within the context of marriage. Or look at Genesis chapter 1. Did you know that God's very first command to humanity is to have sex? 
He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And last time I checked, this doesn't happen through high fives or fist bumps. God is commanding us to have sex. God loves sex. He values sex and he cherishes sex. And therefore, he is calling us to do the same. So what is the sexual sin we must mortify? Any sexual thoughts or, or deeds that are outside the context of a monogamous heterosexual covenant marriage because sexual sin is idolatry and it is serious. Why must we mortify sexual sin? Because of what God has done for you, washing you, sanctifying you, and justifying you. Because of what God will do for you when he will raise you up bodily to be his bride. Because of who you are in Christ. You are members of Christ's body and you are the temple of the living God. Because of whose you are, you belong to God. And how do we mortify sexual sin? Flee from sexual sin and flee to glorifying God with your body. For you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today confessing we are sexually broken people. I'm a sexually broken person. And yet we praise you for the good news that we've heard this morning, that you have washed us, you have cleansed us, you have justified us, you have sanctified us, you've taken this vile sinner and you've made us clean, Lord, and holy and sanctified. It is beyond our comprehension, Lord. God, I pray that when we're in the midst of, of sexual struggles and sexual temptation, God, that we would remember who we are in Christ, that we are your temple, that we are members of your body, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we remember whose we are, that we belong to you. We need your help, Lord. We thank you that you love us despite us and that you're constantly redeeming us and our sexuality. We pray to you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.